Hi, I'm Biz. I'm a working parent with a kid and a teen. It's been 10 years since the show began, and a lot has changed on the show and in the world. But by elevating the voices of others, we have learned we are not alone, and we are doing a good job. This is still a show about life after giving life. This is One Bad Mother. This week on One Bad Mother, who are you going to call? Jane! We talk about the importance of body rights with an original Jane member, Laura Kaplan. Plus, Biz says it's okay. Woo! What? Oh, woo! <laughs> hired mom. Oh. I thought that it would get easier oh. with sleep mm. as kids get older. But apparently, I don't have those kids. It went from being climbing into our bed every night around like, you know, well, okay, I guess it's not actually that time. It's mm. like four in the morning. So it's morning. Oof. It's morning. Yeah. Because we don't sleep anymore. No. But as they got older, we're talking like four, six years old. Now we have to worry about the silence. Ah! It's not the loud. It's not the loud climbing in bed and yelling and jumping on the bed, waking us <laughs> up early. Now ah. it's waking up at 6.30 in the morning to silence no, and no, no, freaking no. the fuck out. <laughs> because what are they doing? We have found them with toddler mattresses at the top of the staircase, climbing on to slide down the mattress, or down the stairs on the mattress. <laughs> and now we are waking up every morning to them downstairs, fully capable of taking care of themselves, apparently, because they pull in chairs from the dining room into the kitchen so they can run on the countertops and explore all the cabinets to try and find sweets, get the remote controls, and watch Netflix. Who knows when they actually woke up? We find them at 6.30 with bags of marshmallows and graham crackers on the couch watching Octonauts. It was so much easier, I feel like, when they were just coming in oh. our room and jumping on our bed. We still didn't get any sleep, but at least they were kind of contained. We knew what they were doing. And now we don't. And, wow. Mm. I'm so tired. Mm. So tired. I hope everyone else has their children contained in some type of fashion. <laughs> All doing a good job. Love you, Biz. Good night. <laughs> good night. Good night to you. <laughs> First of all, you're doing a wonderful job. This reminds me of my favorite story I've talked about on the show. The, what is it, the bunny with the little golden shoes. The golden shoes. It's about the little bunny who wanted to be one of the Easter bunnies. But she had 20 babies. And everybody was like, you silly old woman, you can't be an Easter bunny. What are you going to do with all these children, you silly old woman? How dare you? And <laughs> so she taught her children how to clean, to cook, to make the beds, to did art, to did music, to everybody had a little job so that she could go and be an Easter bunny. You... <laughs> You are that bunny, and you have somehow managed to raise children who can totally feed themselves and entertain themselves. You not so much want to be the Easter bunny, but you do want to sleep, which I think carries as much value as being the Easter bunny. So I know that it is also terrifying. I know that I'm kind of joking, but I'm also kind of not joking. 
Like, are they good at it? They seem pretty good at it. Maybe you could just put a couple like restrictions like, okay, do all this, but I need it to not be marshmallows and graham crackers, right? Like it can be this cereal, right? Like what if I leave the cereal out at night, can you do that instead? As a child who definitely got in a sleeping bag at the top of the stairs, the old nylon sleeping bags, those really picked up some speed as you went down those stairs and slammed your body into the wall. That was very fun. It's still one of my favorite childhood memories. I 100% agree. Silence is very unnerving, but you know what they're doing now. They're watching Octonauts. They're not watching the usual suspects or like White Lotus. It's Octonauts. That's good. And I would like to put your mind at ease that no one has their children under any sort of real control. So you're welcome. I think you're doing a remarkable job. And I see you. You know who I also see. I see Gabe. Hi, Gabe. (laughs) Woo! It's Gabe. Okay. I'm going to do something I don't normally do at the start of a show, but I, you know, ever since the decision from the Supreme Court came down with the Dobbs decision to overturn Roe, I may, maybe, have been seeking out some guests very specific to reproductive rights and justice. And today, we're going to be talking with Laura Kaplan, who's one of the original members of Jane. And if you are not familiar with Jane, that was the underground group of women who created the abortion counseling service in Chicago from 1969 to 1973, when abortion was not legal and women were dying and there were these septic centers and hospitals that they don't even have anymore because access to healthcare became available. But what I found so impactful is how these women's desire to give other women the sort of medical experience that involved, you know, information, (laughs) comfort, care, which was not the norm at the time. And sometimes, even now, I find that really inspiring. One Bed Mother has always been about honoring every person's rights to create a family the way they want to. It's always been about respecting bodies and choices. And from it not even being okay for people to touch our pregnant bodies to not assuming that every woman is a mother, happy Mother's Day, woman on the street, (laughs) to being mindful that not all female-bodied persons are women. To wanting every person who sees a doctor to feel heard and safe. And even though at the forefront of reproductive rights is the topic of abortions, it is about so much more. It impacts even that choice of, you know, how to deliver, how to, you know, raise, how to get medical care for yourself and for your children It is all so interconnected. We want everyone to have the right to make their medical decisions and to seek care and to not be afraid to give care, okay? And just like any other One Bad Mothership, some topics and guests are exactly what you wanted to hear, (laughs) and others are for skipping ahead to the genius and fails, and that is okay, and I am no different. So I just wanted to say that before we head into the interview. I hope you'll stick around and listen because I I find what these women were trying to do to help others who just were not getting medical treatment just completely inspiring because I know that no matter what the issue is, we can always feel overwhelmed with how to help and how to start. And I I think at the core of our discussion today, it is about taking these small actions and just looking at doing this one thing and how that can have a huge impact. So with all of that said, I love you. You're all doing such a good job. And uh, stick around 
because we are going to be having a really fascinating conversation with Laura Kaplan. They can be anywhere, at your office, in your car, and they are wrong. My mom says that the Grey House didn't exist, but she's wrong. He just does it wrong. Someone in your life is wrong about something. Something small, something weird, something vitally important. Only one person has the courage to tell them just how wrong they are. You know what you did was wrong, but your daughter is a liar who eats garbage. (laughs) (laughs) They call me Judge John Hodgman. Listen to me on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. If someone in your life is doing you wrong, don't just take it. Take it to court. Submit your case at MaximumFun.org slash JJHO. Please take a moment to remember, if you're friends of the hosts of One Bad Mother, you should assume that when we talk about other moms, we're talking about you. If you are married to the host of One Bad Mother, we definitely are talking about you. Nothing we say constitutes professional parenting advice. Ms. and Teresa's children are brilliant, lovely, and exceedingly extraordinary. Nothing said on this podcast about them implies otherwise. Everybody, I am... Very excited and and honored to be talking with Laura Kaplan, who is the author of The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service, and was a member of Jane. A lifelong activist, she was a lay midwife, an advocate for battered women, and an advocate for nursing home residents. She has worked on public policy for consumers, covered by managed care plans, and served on the board of the National Women's Health Network. She's been involved in many community projects and continues to lecture about Jane. It's going to be one of those shows, everybody. Get excited. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, really, thank you. Not not just for joining us on the show, but for this legacy of work that you have done that absolutely leads someone like me to be able to do a show like this. So thank you. Before we get into Jane and women's rights, and especially when it comes to their bodies, I wanted to ask you what we ask our guests, which is who lives in your house? Well, currently just me lives in my house. (laughs) Um, My ancient dog left this plane in September and I miss her madly because she was my company. Yeah. I'm very sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, nobody lives forever. And she was almost 17 and a half. So. Oh, good job. And a 50 pound dog. So (laughs) she was past her expiration date. (laughs) I am familiar with dogs like that. Yes. That's wonderful. Laura, I want to start just by asking a question you've been asked eight bazillion times. But I, so I, I'd hate asking it, but I think it's important. And that is to us, you wrote this book, The Story of Jane, the Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service in 1996. And here we are in 2022. And it's incredibly relevant and important for us to know about. Tell us, if you can, briefly about who the Janes were and what brought you to them. Well, Jane was the code name <laughs> for the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation in Chicago. Internally, we always refer to ourselves as the service, as if there was only one. Right. But the outside world knew us as Jane. We weren't called the Janes. We were never known as the Jane Collective. And if anybody reads my book, they'll understand how we really weren't a collective. (laughs) So we started, like many other women's liberation groups around the country, to sort of suss out the underground abortion network that was available to women and figure out who were the competent practitioners and raise money because illegal abortions were extremely expensive to pay for women's abortions and prepare women for the experience they would be going through. That's how we started. There were groups all over the country doing the same thing. And in fact, the clergy, through the clergy consultation service, were also doing a similar, similar things. 
But Jane was unique in that we evolved so that within like a year and a half, we had learned to do the abortions ourselves. And from then on, it was a totally woman-staffed and run organization. We charged $100 of what you could afford, which was sometimes $5 and sometimes 15 and some often nothing and provided an experience that was, I believe, really unique in medical practice in general. So that's when we folded shortly after Roe was decided a few months later, when the first clinics opened in Chicago, we estimate we were responsible for more than 11,000 illegal abortions, safe, affordable, illegal abortions for women in the city of Chicago, the suburbs, and the surrounding states, because women came from out of town to get abortions through Jane. So that's, in a nutshell, who we were. And I got involved because I had moved back to Chicago. I'd gone to college in Chicago And I moved back to Chicago in 1971. I was 24. And my dear friend, Alice, who I was in school with, discovered she was pregnant. And it was not the right time for her at all. And so she looked around and she saw an ad in an underground newspaper that said, pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane with our number, 643 Three eight four four, And so she called Jane, and uh, after her abortion, she came to my apartment, and she was so excited by the experience, not just excited because she was no longer pregnant, but excited by everything that had gone on that day, that she was almost bouncing off the walls. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. <laughs> And I was not thinking about, I wanted to get involved in the women's liberation movement. I was not thinking about abortion because I had come from New York and New York had legalized abortion in 1970. So, you know, abortion wasn't foremost in my mind, but her description of what her experience had been was so exhilarating. And mind you, this is an illegal abortion that she took me to meet her counselor who lived a few blocks away from me and who told me that the group was starting a new training session, new counselor training session. And so I signed myself up. And as they say, the rest is history. It really took over my life in a very positive way. Yeah, no, I. it is sometimes very hard to imagine being a person myself who grew up, you know, born in the 70s, uh, but really grew up in the 80s. And, you know, my entire life, it's been pretty much available to me, as well as birth control pills, as well as general privacy to make whatever choices I wanted to make. And I, I think it can be hard for people to wrap their mind around the importance and why having access to abortions has such a strong impact. And like, I think people think it's, you know, it's the old concept of, you know, this villainized person, you know, going down the alley, getting their abortion. And, you know, they they only want it because they're horrible, bad people and something, you know, it's just garbage stories. But I know that's not true. I know I mean I know plenty of people who've had abortions now and I can you talk about the stigma of what you witnessed and what I think what people who may not know a lot about the history of abortion in our country um, and its impact on families, its impact on health care and general rights of women what you witnessed from your experiences, what we don't know, what we're, we don't understand. Well, you know, before women started talking to each other in, in 
in the women's liberation, through the women's liberation movement in consciousness raising groups or women's groups. I think most of us at that point had this notion in our minds that every once in a while a woman had an illegal abortion and she died from it. And we'd all seen the pictures of the crumpled, bloodied bodies in alleyways, etc. But when women started talking to each other about women's issues, and of course, abortion is a issue women's, for those yeah. who can get pregnant, right? they discovered that lots of women tried to get abortions. Many of them succeeded. Their experiences maybe weren't very pleasant, but here they were alive afterwards talking about it. And that's why groups of women all over the country decided to do just what we started out doing, to just make that passage safer, because some of the things people experienced were just horrendous. Yeah. And I, when I was doing interviews for my book, this gynecologist said to me, if you don't have control of your reproduction, then none of the other rights you supposedly have really have any meaning. That's fundamental. If you're going to participate in our society, in the world, and develop yourself as fully as you can, the basic is being able to control when and if you're going to have a child. So I don't know if I've answered your question exactly, but... (laughs) Pretty, pretty straightforward answer. It's one of those questions that's sort of like, oh, is I'm going to ask you a question that basically is like, we need rights and choices so that we can be full members of society. Because, you know, we were talking before the show about, you know, how do we talk about this? It's a funny podcast. But I think for a lot of women that one of the key things I think you said was talking to each other. And, you know, we still are told not to talk to each other or to really not trust or like each other, you know, mommy wars. Let's just come up with some sort of garbage notion so that women can hate each other. How do you parent? How do you, right? Like, do I work? Do I not work? What is work, right? Like, what are these ways that in our media and in our culture can cause us to stop talking? And then we can't talk about things like miscarriage. We can't talk about things like what happens to our bodies if we had children that way, if children got into our house that way, I can't tell you the conversations about peeing and like, what? Maybe there's a way to fix peeing, right? Like, <laughs> if I had only asked, right? Like, they would just, shh, don't talk about it. Shh, shh, shh. Right. Secret, right. secret, gross, gross, women's bodies, yuck. So, <laughs> so that talking is so important and realizing that you're not alone because it's really easy to be isolated, even if you're surrounded by people. Right. And, you know, I'm going to interrupt you here. No, please interrupt me. (laughs) I, you know, the stigmas that are attached to abortion Mm -hmm. have continued into the present. You know, it's not like, oh, Roe was decided and then everything was above board and, you know, the shame and self-blame and all the negative things that women put on themselves. Oh, yeah. Certainly have continued, you know, up until the present time. And now, of course, things are really, really difficult for so many women. But, you know, just to be clear, abortion before Dobbs was not accessible to most women in the country. You know, it was as if Roe never happened. There were whole states where there were no providers. And people had to leave their states. And and still in states where abortion is still legal, women have to travel sometimes quite far to find a clinic, to find a provider, unless they have one of the enlightened gynecologists <laughs> who sees abortion as just part of their practice. And I... I I have a friend who's a gynecologist who just, her practice does abortions for their patients, you know, when they need it, because it's just part of women's health care. And of course, that's what we always hoped 
would happen, that it would be normalized the way it is, in fact, a very normal, common event for women. You know, I'm probably the rare case of a woman who hasn't had an abortion. Right. (laughs) Well, right. I, I agree. I think it's that the normalizing, but there's so many things about female-bodied people that are supposed, that are treated as not normal, right? I mean, again, I go back to miscarriages and how, like, ah, just the thought of, like, don't tell anybody you're pregnant for three months in case you have a miscarriage. I guess because you don't want to upset other people? Fuck that. I would like to tell people right away so that if I have a miscarriage, people are able to support me. <laughs> right, just, but, right. But that's that thing. So so with that said, because I think about what's different now in terms, now that Roe has been overturned with the Dobbs case, I think about what's different now and I think about the groups that are out there. So, you know, supposedly we have access to abortion pills. And I know that that's Everything I'm about to say is up in the air. We have access to abortion pills. We've got the internet now. So we've got sites like I Need an A who help people find access and Shout Your Abortion, which is all about normalizing, sharing stories, getting it out there. But I feel like what's, and you, and please correct me because I love being corrected. (laughs) I'm a sponge for corrections. I feel like one of the things that's, a little different now with this overturning is suddenly something like miscarriages, for example, in some states are being called into question and risk in a way that I don't feel that they had been before. And I think about this ability for average citizens to deputize themselves and, you know, sue doctors. And I mean, I keep thinking about women, if you have a miscarriage and you are in a state And then somebody questions you during this most difficult time of if it was really a miscarriage or was it an abortion is insane to me. I think about women who now have to choose colleges based on what's legal in that state because people want to pass laws in which they collect your data if you travel and if you, you know, have had an abortion. Like, was that the same? I mean, that is a horrible climate. Was that the same climate? Or was it so sort of hush-hushed and no one, it was happening, but we didn't talk about it. Was that the same climate back then in the 70s? No, because abortion was illegal and and that's just the way it was, you know? Yeah. And so there weren't those kinds of uh, potential liabilities. Right. I don't think, uh, you know, it, it's. Com- <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't put anything past this particular Supreme Court, but it's yes. so unconstitutional to yes. regulate people traveling interstate and to spy upon them is just plain <laughs> unconstitutional. You know, we in Jane and me in particular, we were never thrilled with Roe, the way right. the decision was written. And it was very limiting. And it also open the door to all the restrictions that followed. And there were lots and lots of restrictions that followed. So I don't think Dobbs is going to stand because I don't Mm -hmm. think women in this country are going to allow it to stand. And I think the midterm elections and the referenda that happened even in red states proves that. And so I'm hoping that what follows Roe is much more woman-centered, where we get back to talking about women's ability and women's rights and respect for women. You know, I did a talk in Arkansas, this was decades ago, and there was a guy, young student guy, I guess he was a student in the audience who, like monopolized the Q&A section, very anti-abortion. And I answered his questions and blah, blah, blah. And I kept talking about respecting women's decisions. (laughs) And afterwards, he came up to me to thank me for treating him with such respect. 
And I thought, yeah, you want to be treated with respect, but you don't want to respect other people. You know, I didn't, I I was so flabbergasted that he could be so stupid and dense (laughs) that he didn't see the contradiction in what he was saying. I mean, he just thought he was going to give me a little stroke for not, you know, being rude to him or something, which I wouldn't be. I mean, I thought about it, but, (laughs) you know, I wouldn't do that, but couldn't extrapolate from that to anybody outside of himself, you know? So we're dealing with, you know, and this is true of everyone. I mean, I have friends who say things to me where I think, do they hear what they're saying? Did they, yeah. (laughs) Do they think before they open their mouths? You know, it, it, we're all a little dense in many ways, but this is, we're talking about people's lives here and people's ability to participate fully in life. So this is st- serious business that we're talking about. But I have incredible faith in young people today. And, you know, my sense is that Jane becomes not a model or a blueprint, but kind of a touchstone. You know, one thing we didn't know, I mean, we just thought we were out there on Mars. You know, (laughs) where did we come up with this stuff? I know, it is kind of remarkable. (laughs) Right, until after we folded, when when we read Barbara Ehrenreich's and Deirdre English's pamphlet, which is Midwives and Nurses. And if you haven't read it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, very thin. It's brilliant, you know, and it just traces the history of women as healers and midwives and abortionists as well, because a lot of midwives also did abortions. I mean, it just makes sense going back thousands of years, you know. And so at that point, we said, oh, we have a history. We come from something. We didn't just spring from full-blown from Zeus's head, you know, (laughs) we were standing on other people's shoulders. We just didn't know it. But now that folks have the model of what we did when abortion was illegal, and of course, with medical abortions, it's a lot simpler now than it was. I mean, we were doing surgery. We were doing DNC abortions. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I mean, do you ever look back and just go, oh my gosh, that's what were we doing? Like, I, you read it and you're like, what? <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. And we say, you know, we've looked at each other and said, did we really do that? Do that? I mean, I- but. The thing to remember, I think, when people look at us from outside, which is one of the reasons I really felt strongly that somebody internal had to write our history. Mm -hmm. Because from the outside, people tend to see us as, you know, the adjectives are brave, courageous, and, you know, like Amazon warriors when we were pretty ordinary women. Yeah. And we didn't, none of us started out saying oh, we're going to learn to do abortions and set up this whole underground (laughs) network. No, nothing like that. That's the farthest from the truth. You start out with the peace you can do. And this is true for any kind of attempt to correct a wrong, is you start out with what you can do right here and now and keep people's needs in the forefront and see where that leads you, you know, so that... You know, I have to explain to people, no, I got trained to do counseling. And then I got tapped to do some of our important administrative work. And I did that for a long time. And then, you know, I had to bring in an address over to a place we were working, a neighbor's apartment, actually, a friend of mine's apartment. (laughs) And so I knock on the door. You know, somebody had called me and said, go over to whoever's, I think it was Peaches's apartment around the corner from me. And they need this address for the next day. And so I went over there and Diane said to me, and these are people you see in the film, so that's why I'm using their names. 
Diane said, oh, have you ever seen an abortion? And I said, no. And she said, well, come on in. And she asked the woman (laughs) on the bed, would it be okay if somebody comes in and watches? And she was a young black woman. It's seared in my memory. Yeah. And so I walk in the room and she's lying on the bed with her legs up and, you know, and there's blood and she's talking to me and I'm talking to her and I'm thinking, all of a sudden it's like wang, wang, wang. And I think, <laughs> oh, I am going to pass out. I yes! have to get out of here, you know, because I've never seen anything like this Yeah, in my life, you know. I mean, I was 24, so I didn't have that much of a life behind me, but. <laughs> Certainly. I right. had to say, oh, thank you so much. I yeah. really have to go. <clears throat> but you get used to it. Right. You know, it's like it's shocking the first time. The second time, it's not so shocking. By the third time, it's sort of, well, this is what we do. And, you know, I, I say to people, we created the world we wanted to live in. Mm-hmm. And we made that real within our little purview. And so the care and consideration that the women yeah. who came through the service, and we always talked about not coming to, but through, because it was a process. It was an experience, not a place. I mean, there was a place, but right. yes, that wasn't, that we were able, because we weren't medical professionals, none of us, <laughs> to create an experience, a medical experience that was quite unique and unusual in that the woman on the bed was the center of the experience. And everything was geared toward making her not only comfortable, but educated about what was happening, about her body. I mean, this is a time, you know, you go into a bookstore now And there's shelves and shelves of books about women's health. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, and we started in 1969, there was nothing. Mm -hmm. There was was no information out there. You know, our bodies, ourselves. The first edition was newsprint, this thick, (laughs) 35 cents. I have my copy in my (laughs) office, my original copy. Didn't come out till December of 1970, so the very end of 1970. And then, of course, we got as many, we got thousands of copies, and we just gave them to everybody. Gave them out, yeah. You know, like candy. I mean, we'd say, (laughs) take one for your sister, take one for your best friend, you know, take, 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 you know, have this information. But, you know, and also because we were legal, so we never looked at the people who came to us as patients. Yeah. You know, we saw them as partners, you know, partners in crime, in fact. And we would say to people, you know, we're putting our lives in your hands like you're putting your lives in our hands. You know, so there's an equalizing as much as you can. But it was a very unique medical experience. Eileen, I think she says this in the film, and she was a nurse for her whole professional life. She said it was the best medical experience she ever had. And she was blindfolded because we were still using the guy. And he right. insisted on blindfold. So she's blindfolded in a strange apartment in a part of the city she didn't know. And it was the best medical experience she'd ever had. So what does that say? What does it say about the state of current medical (laughs) experiences? I I know. And what does it say about if we put our minds together again and you keep the need of the person in the forefront? And we also thought about what would make us feel comfortable. I mean, women called us, were terrified. They were terrified. I mean, to the point where one of the counselors who I interviewed for the book said to me, she spent this hour counseling this woman and we did all this birth control counseling and how your body works and blah, 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 as well as 
about the abortion, the woman looked at her at the end and said, and will I be alive after this? Oh, babe. So <laughs> women were terrified. Yeah. And so we needed to do whatever we could to take some of that terror away. So not only did we explain what was going to happen in the abortion itself, but we explained everything you were going to experience that day, who you were going to see, what things would look like, what they would sound like, because we knew yeah. the not knowing is, is what the worst. Is yeah, the worst. And, and we still, there's still so many situations in which there is not knowing. And I think it's such a remarkable experience that you provided because not only have I, but you know, so many people that I know have gone through experiences, medical experiences, where I guess the doctor does it every day. So they they already know what's going to happen and, and feel you feel like it's a burden to ask. You feel like very, it's very easy to feel dismissed and unheard in medical situations and that unknowing and is this normal and is this supposed to happen really can mess with you and make you feel, I don't know, it plays into that sense of not feeling like a person anymore with rights as an individual. Right. Well, the medical profession wants you to be a patient, wants you to be passive because it's easier for them. And I have to say, you know, there's a distancing that goes on in medical practice, you know, with the drapes. What do we need drapes for? You know, segregating that part of your body, it's connected to you. We never use drapes. But the (laughs) other side of it is that because we didn't have that distancing, so we weren't Mm -hmm. emotionally protected. So there, you know, Martha said to me it was the first time in her life she ever got cavities from the stress. Yeah. And Jody wound up in, you know, a psych ward. Psychiatric, yeah. Signed herself into a psych board. She said to me, you know, I'd close my eyes and I'd see an unending line of women in pain. And I was the instrument of their pain. And I just couldn't do it. Not one more day. I just couldn't do it. So there's, there's a price to pay for trying to do things in a radically different way. I'm not going to paint you know, this is the way to do it and everybody should do it this way. But I need to recognize the downsides. Just like in the book, I talk about a lot of the internal problems in the group because I want people to know, you know, we weren't angels. We weren't perfect. We were, we were regular folks. Regular people. Right. Yeah. There was backbiting. (laughs) There was gossip. There were clicks. And if you were in a certain clique, then you really didn't talk to the people in another clique. And, you know, there was all that bullshit, you know, (laughs) that anybody who's been in a group has experienced, you know. So I I didn't want to paint us as perfect because we were far from perfect. And I I, I joke with people now, you know, in the film but I see the film and there are people in the film. I couldn't stand them back then. Right. I still can't stand them, <laughs> you know. And that was the other piece that was, I think, a good lesson is that you yeah. can work with people you really don't particularly like and you're never going to like and still accomplish something valuable and rewarding well, and, and important. still treat them with you know, kindness and respect, right? Like, yeah, I mean, we didn't always treat each other. They're good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> with kindness and respect. <laughs> you know, we did with the women. Right. Who called us. And I use the word woman because, you know, I've racked my brains. And at least in my recollection, everyone who came to us presented as female. Right. Back then, you know, that might not be true today, but it was true then in our experience back then but with each other we were as bad as any group is i mean and if you've been in a group you know exactly what i'm talking about but the point is it doesn't matter as long right. as you have the goal is in common then you can you can achieve your goals 
And as long as you start from what you can do right now. Laura, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. I think not only knowing this history is important, I, I really value the idea of it's very easy to feel like you are the only person to discover that you were actually already standing on other shoulders. Like, I think that that is incredibly comforting and insightful and something to remind ourselves. And I want to thank you not only for writing the book, I want to thank you for the work that you and all your fellow cohorts, your team, your, I mean, what would they call it now? What are they? Your squad. <laughs> so yeah, insulting. that's fine. I know. Your team, the team of people who you worked with, what they did, uh, and there is value in taking some of those things as we move forward and continue to, I mean, I guys, it's not like it's all done and better now. <laughs> so we need to stay focused on helping and supporting each other in whatever ways that looks like. And remembering we're all coming from different experiences and that doesn't negate anything. So everybody, you know what I say. You all know where to get a book. But we're going to make it easy for you and put a link in the show notes. We're also... I can hold up my copy also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Woo, there it is. I don't look at Wee! As always, buy a copy for yourself, buy a copy for your library, and buy a copy for a friend. I mean, yeah, yeah, send this to... This definitely needs to be in a school library, so get it for them too. Laura, thank you so much for for everything. Thank you for having me. I, this was very interesting and lots of fun and good <laughs> luck and it's fine. all of that. All of that. Hi, I'm Ketchup. And I'm Socks. And I'm Ball Bearings. And I'm Pigeons. And I'm Water Towers. And I'm Cardboard. Surprise! We're actually humans. Humans making a podcast about those kinds of topics. Because those are real episode topics on the podcast, secretly incredibly fascinating. That's a podcast where we take ordinary seeming things like ketchup and socks and cardboard and bring you the little known history and science and stories that make those things secretly incredibly fascinating. Secretly incredibly fascinating. The title of the podcast. Hear the back catalog anytime and hear new amazing episodes every Monday at MaximumFun.org. Hey, you know what it's time for this week's Genius and Fails. This is the part of the show where we share our genius moment of the week, as well as our failures, and feel better about ourselves by hearing yours. You can share some of your own by calling 206-350-9485. That's 206-350-9485. Genius fail time. Genius me, me. Okay. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I saw what you did. Oh, my God. I'm paying attention. Wow. You, Mom, are a genius. Oh, my God. That's fucking genius. I asked for help. Boop, 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 boop. And I got some help. So my good friend, longtime friend, Baz. Yes, he goes by Baz. And I go by Viz. And it's obvious that we were supposed to be friends forever. I love Baz. And he offered, when he heard about all the stuff Mama was going through, he has a lot of medical history. A lot, la, 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 la. His most recent bout was with being di diagnosed with MS. And when he had put that out in the world, he said he had gotten, like, so many gift cards to, like, you know, Uber Eats and, like, all these eating delivery services. And he was like, I've got more than I can use. So just let me know type of food, time you want the food, and how much food do you want? And, like, two months passed by. And then the other night, like, Stefan and I both—Stefan's been carrying the cooking load hardcore 
I see you, Stefan. Thank you. And I have not. <laughs> not even a little. And it was just like one of those days where I knew it was going to fall to me. And I texted Baz and I said, Baz, is the offer stand? And he said, yes. And I was like, we want ramen. This is where we want it from. This is what we like. And bada bing, bada bang, bada boom. At six o'clock, ding dong, our dinner arrived. And it was so nice. <laughs> it was so nice. It really meant I didn't have to think about it. So there you go. It was a pleasure. I have the smallest genius in the world. My children were playing outside in the backyard. I got my five-year-old to put on shoes and my three-year-old to put on a coat. I think that averages to a child who is appropriately dressed for January weather outdoors. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to count it. I'm a genius. You're all doing a great job, too. I, this is genius. I really like imagining that the child in the boots is completely nude otherwise. And the one in the jacket is nude otherwise. And again, like you said, it almost makes a whole dressed child. And I love it. And I see you. And I think that is a definite win. Good job. Failures. Fail, 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 fail. You suck. Uh, well, I've totally been forgetting stuff. I mean, big stuff, little stuff, like uh, leaving cell phones places. I like that I said cell phones as if I have like eight cell phones. It's just the one cell phone that's very old and out of date, according to teens, as you may remember. I've left my computer at my parents' house. I have left the keys to my parents' house at my parents' house. I have completely forgotten about work days, like at my school that I'm supposed to be leading I have forgotten many things, and I, I appreciate that that's fair, but some of them are really big <laughs> and result in impacting others, and that, that's bad. That's a fail. That is a fa I need more lists. That's, that will help. Hi, Biz. I am calling with a fail. So yesterday, my son lost his second tooth, well, third. His first two teeth came out at the same time on the bottom, but this one had been hanging on on the top for a while. He lost that tooth. We actually had a dental appointment that day. Everything's great. I write a tooth fairy note. My mom has a $2 bill to put in, which is super special. And I put it in my bedroom so I can remember to put it under his pillow before I go to bed. But I'm really, really tired, and I forget to put it under his pillow before I go to bed. So when I wake up at 6.30 to get him ready for school, and he says, oh, I got to look under my pillow, I panic, and I say, no, no, you have to go out to the living room. And I <laughs> shoo him out to the living room. I run into my bedroom. Uh, I grab the tooth fairy stuff, jam it under the pillow, grab his tooth. And he's like, Mom, why are you doing this? You can come back now. <laughs> Luckily, he was half asleep, and I think I covered my tracks pretty well, but I feel really bad. So I forgot to be the tooth fairy last night. I'm doing a horrible job. You all are doing a great job. Thanks for the show. Bye. How dare you forget to be a fairy? I tell you, it's really the fail... Again, the forgetting, I actually feel more forgiving of. It's the sensation of having to scramble. That's, that's the, like, fail topping on the fail Sunday. It's the, like, uh, like <laughs> quick, look over here, <laughs> smoke bomb. You know, you got to grab it and stick it in the thing. Of the, but, I mean, we've done that. The scramble, that it's no good. No one likes it. It makes you feel like it, it takes the failure that you probably could have overlooked and just makes it feel bad. Like a, just a big, loud reminder in your face. Well, you're doing, oh, God, guys, it is incredible all that we do. Doing the, being the fairies, right? Like the other day, I was thinking about like, I was driving the kids to school, and this song, Taylor Swift's 
the Great War or the war, I can't remember, comes on. And Ellis is like, can we drive around the block? And I'm like, no, we can't. I have to be somewhere. But I'll have it queued up for you when you I pick you up from school. And then I do. Like, I do. I know, like, that's, that's so nice. And I, I, I don't even, I think they care. And that's so much magic. Like, that's a lot of responsibility. Like, what is up with the responsibility of us supposed to be in charge of, like, magic and wonder and awe? So, yeah, it, I call, I, maybe I'm calling bullshit on the whole thing. That could be it. Either way, I scrambled to play it. You're doing a horrible, horrible job. You are the greatest mom I've ever known. I love you, I love you. When I have a problem, I call you on the phone. I love you, I love you. All right, everybody. Let's listen to a mom have a breakdown. Hi, Biz. I am calling with a rant. I have just gotten back from one of the worst family trips I have ever been on and packed all of this shit and drove four hours to get to a family member's house. Here's the deal. My kids are very allergic to dogs to the point that if they get licked in the face by a dog, they will break out in hives, cough, itch until they are bloody. And it's not a joke, and it's a real thing, you know. And the thing about it is it just seems like no matter how many times I tell certain people my kids are allergic, like when we come over, we're there for a short time, like can we figure something out together where, like, my kids aren't going to get licked in the face the first five seconds that they come through the door. And you know what? With some people, it just doesn't matter how many times I say it. Whatever boundaries I set, it doesn't matter. The trip was hell. The dogs were all over my kids. We asked them to put them away. They did for a short time. They came back out again. And you know what? My husband and I ended up leaving early. We were supposed to be on this trip for three days and we were there for a day and I decided last night we were just going to pack up our shit and go home because I can't I can't deal with the stress of trying to be a bouncer between animals and my kids and my kids I'm sorry are more important than the comfort of a pet when someone is that allergic and I'm I'm just fucking tired of trying to justify it to everyone. And everyone thinks I'm fucking over-exaggerating, even though it's like you can clearly see what's going on, and I'm pissed. I just fucking, we drove home. I got a speeding ticket. I'm just fucking, everything fucking sucks right now. Like, all the time and energy it takes and trying to do the right thing and going to see family members. And I just, why? I just wonder why I do it sometimes. That's all I wanted to say. I know I just need a safe space to vent because I'm not trying to, like, cause drama. I just fucking Mm. want someone to see me sometimes and respect me and my boundaries and my kids. So that's all I want to say. You're all doing a really good job. Um, And you know what? Even though I'm ranting, I think I did a pretty good job leading the situation. So love to you guys. Bye. You did. You did a really good job. You are doing a good job. You are doing a good job. One more time. You are doing a good job. I want to give focus to what you said about knowing that you just needed to put this somewhere because you don't want to start drama. I get it. Like I have those relationships and you want to be like, Oh, why are you, why do you sound like that? Why are you saying that? Like, uh, you you say you love me, but it sounds like you're insulting me, right? Like, (laughs) you know, or little things like that where you're like, look, that's not a fixable thing. That's just a thing that's there. And in the long run, and this is not true for everything, but in some situations, in the long run, it is easier to just get it out somewhere productively. It sounds to me like you have gone above and beyond to express your concerns and the needs that your family has. 
And after doing that, your responsibility ends, in my opinion. But my opinion. But everybody's got those, just like assholes. So, you know, I I just want to say that I see you for that. I also want all of us to consider this. Do you know, like, how many times in my day-to-day conversations with people, as well as just having talked and listened to people on this show and through the show over the years, for people whose kids have any sort of special need, whether it is an allergy, whether it is a sound sensitivity, whether it is, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. They like hate Fridays. I don't know. The need to put the requirement they feel to put, to prove it, to prove it to others is exhausting. And backwards because all anybody needs to say is this is dangerous to my kids or this is dangerous to me can we accommodate it and if the person you're asking is not an asshole then they should be able to help find a way to accommodate and it sucks when we find ourselves in situations in which people are not doing that. And that's really hard. That's really hard. It's really hard that you drove all that way and expressed your needs and still found yourself in a situation where your children were not safe and you could not feel comfortable. And that sucks. And you did a remarkable job making the choice to leave. Again, you've set how far you're willing to go, how willing you are to accommodate others, but also where your lines are in terms of protecting your children. It now falls to the other people. If they want to see you, then yeah, they need to be willing to accommodate or they need to come see you, right? And not bring the dogs. I mean, like I love dogs. I love cats. We have a sweet, sweet friend of Raiden's who I adore, and they are really allergic to cats. So whenever they come over, we set up the outside so it's really nice for them. Or if I know the weather's bad and they have to be inside, I get all the cats in one room, and I make sure that I, like, you know, get the air purifiers going and give it a really good dusting and vacuuming just to make sure that the areas that this child's going to be in are safe, right? And I check in with the parents. I mean, these were easy things to do. These were not hard. It was not hard. Or I can try and make it so that there are places I can take the kids to spend time together or be willing to drive my child to their house, right? I don't hate that child. I love that child. I don't think, they, I don't think the kid's lying. I'm not like, come on, just come on in, right? Like I'm not, <laughs> just take a pill. Why don't you, right? Like, I, that's what a garbage thing to do. What a garbage human being thing to do. So, you know, it might be that if you want to stay in touch with this, you know, member of the family, that only you go. Might be nice. Have a little time away. You could put a spin on it for yourself. But I think the bottom line is, oh, my God, doesn't this all tie in together? These are your choices. These are your rights to keep your children safe and to set the boundaries that you need to set to do so, okay? Doesn't mean they'll be the same boundaries a year from now or 10 years from now, but right now, they're the ones that work for you and your family. I think you're doing a remarkable job and I really do see you. And a speeding ticket, well, that is just a punch in the gut. I am so sorry. You are doing a good job. Everybody, you are all doing a good job, regardless of how you are doing it, regardless of if you feel you have made mistakes, regardless of if you are revisiting choices that you maybe made in the past, regardless of if you feel like you are failing at everything, you, you aren't. You are doing a very good job. You know your family, whatever that family looks like, 
and you know what you need. And it is okay to trust your instincts and to care for yourself and your family. It is hard to do that sometimes. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying. I think you're all doing a remarkable job. This is impossible and hard and gross sometimes <laughs> and hilarious at other times. And I just, I see you. I see all of it. You're all doing a remarkable job. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>